All right, and um, as we close out the preface section, uh, there is one thing that I definitely wanted to touch upon uh, before we move on to chapter zero. There, on page eight, there is a poem, um, and it goes as uh, it goes as following. The one who confuses the label water for water is naive indeed. Repeating water, water, such a person is destined to die of thirst. Repeating fire, fire, produces not a scratch on the lip. A single spark on a lip is enough to burn it. Now, this poem really reached out to me. Um, especially the second line, repeating water, water, such a person is destined to die of thirst because even though they are, they, they're crying out for water until they actually drink of the water, they're not actually going to have that thirst quenched. They're actually not going to receive that life-giving water that will, that will save them. Um, this was, this was very interesting. Um, I, can you please uh, elaborate on why this poem was included and why it is important for our listeners to understand the depth of this poem. So that's a really good question, Julius. The reason this comes so early in the chapter is that if you think about it, and, and we'll, we will get into this in chapter zero as well, that these philosophies came from a part of the world where there was plenty and uh, this this comes from a particular poet in pakistan rajasthan modern day pakistan is where the subcontinent um, has the famed seven rivers where there was a lot of agriculture and people had the time to think about stuff in life and so this theme of the difference between labels and experiences there is a very powerful theme that emerged from the Indus Valley civilization. And you'll see this theme echoed in major world philosophies. So the Zen uh, folks have it. In, in Hinduism, it's there. In you know, This is Sufi poetry, it's there. And, and it's just such a fundamental distinction that labels are shortcuts that humans have created. These are distinctions but they are a, a pointer to reality. They're not reality itself. So this poem is really giving us that foundational nudge that, hey, don't be satisfied with the label. The label was just a helpful tool to point you towards the experience. It's the experience ultimately that matters. So don't, don't settle for the construct. Settle for what's real. And that's that sets the tone of the rest of the book. That's why it appears the very first thing, in a sense, that we are in such an intellectually oriented society that we have labels upon labels upon labels, distinctions upon distinctions upon distinctions. At, at some point, we have to be aware of the trap of losing our connection to reality. And once we become aware, then it, then the work is much easier because then you can just restore your connection. So that's the reason why this poem spoke to me as well. I love that because it's almost like all these labels have put us into a box 
uh, it's like each label, each of these labels are like uh, creating the walls of the box, and we are living our lives based on these walls. Uh, you know, we think about the the job, and we'll we'll get into this a little more in the next chapter. But you think about a job, um, you know, you're like my label is accountant. So therefore, there are rules to being an accountant. There are certain things that I must abide by. And it's like, well, you are more than an accountant, though. You, you may be a, a son. You may be a brother. You may be um, a father. You may be a, you know, there, there's many different facets. There's many different titles that someone holds that, perhaps you can bring other parts of yourself into that label that is accountant. But in order to do that, that requires thinking outside the box. It requires to thinking past the label and trying to become a whole person. Um, so yeah, I, I really, I really love, I really love this poem. Um, is there anything you else that you would like to say really quick before we dive into the next chapter? Maybe one thing I'll say is this is an important distinction between reality and, and labels. And at the same time, you know, it, it's easy to think that we should do away with labels. Perhaps that's the nudge and that's not the nudge. The nudge is to being in the space where the label connects with the experience, dances with the, inter the, the experience. That intersection is is really the meaningful space we want to inhabit because that is where our life is. Our life is at that intersection. We are creators. And how do we create? We create with these distinctions, right? We talked about the pot and not pot. So let me put it that way, that it's not one or the other. It's the intersection. All right. Thank you very much for that. Thank you. Um, and for elaborating upon, elaborating upon that as well. And so um, that will conclude the preface section. We are now going to be um, diving into chapter zero. Welcome, everyone. We are now going to be diving into chapter zero of Invaluable Achieving Clarity on Value. Before we begin, we really want to read the the beginning of the of the chapter in which it says they said emptiness and fullness were opposite ends of the spectrum meanwhile emptiness found itself full and fullness found itself empty uh samik i would really love to know why did you choose this as the beginning of of the chapters the, why why was this chosen as the start so each chapter has a poetic summary. So I've, I've been writing these chapters and then reflecting on what is the essence of the chapter. And that's what the poetic summary really indicates. And this particular poetic summary, in my mind, um, I guess one of the worst things one can do is ask a poet to explain the meaning of poetry. But there we go. Um, the, the, the essence of this is, I think that, is, you know, in my, in my, dialogue with um, intellectuals in the West, I have found that fullness and emptiness um, have often been seen 
as two separate ideas. And this is very interesting because in the East, they are seen as two sides of the same coin. And this is such a fundamental idea. This is not, uh, not just philosophical. This is actually true in our present day mathematics. That is the essence of this chapter. That hey, you do not, do not have to leave your current society, your current education to understand this. This is what you learned in school. It's just that you didn't work out the implications necessarily. And this chapter is telling you, look, if, if you just use a simple math, it, it becomes very clear that fullness and emptiness are not two different things. And that's a, that's a very profound thing that for our mundane counting system, which our children at the age of God knows when they learn math, like, you know, four or five onwards, that's the foundational depth that we already have, but we are not stopping to marvel at it. That contradiction in our appreciation, like we should be appreciating this so much more. That's why I wanted to call this out. That's very interesting because I feel like we live in a society of dichotomies. You know, there it's pretty much like, oh, it's black or white, good or evil, uh, good or bad. Uh, when it's like, can the light survive without the darkness? Can the darkness survive without the light? Uh, they're, they're like you said. I, I really loved how you put it. There, it's two sides of the same coin. Um, and I, I think that as we continue on, our listeners will start to understand that concept more and more. Um. So the first section that I really want to get into um, is actually at the beginning of chapter zero on page 30, uh, when it goes into Emperor Wu's court. This is a story. It takes place in 520 AD China. Um, and it goes as the following. Um, Emperor Wu looked at a strange visitor. A bearded monk with big bulging eyes stood in front of him. He had come all the way from India and was regarded as a great teacher of Buddhism. The emperor, a Buddhist himself, eager to get an affirmation of his divine merits, asked, How much merit have I earned for my support of Buddhism? He was a great patron and had done much public service in the name of Buddhism. The monk replied bluntly, None. Deeds that expect worldly return may bring good karma but produce no merit whatsoever. Emperor Wu was shocked. He asked, then what is the meaning of the four noble truths? The monk replied, there is no noble truth, only emptiness. Um, I, I found this fascinating. As someone that grew up in the Christian faith, for example, um, you know, there, there was something in, in the, the Christian text talking about um, no, they would be, they would base essentially the story goes someone would go to heaven uh, or they would be before God in the, in the uh, judgment seat and be like, Lord, Lord, I did so many things in your name. And uh, God basically goes like, I, I know you not, you worker of iniquity. Like just because you, you did things does not automatically mean that what you did was good. Um, and that's kind of what it reminded me on my level. However, this kind of takes things to another level um, because it really gets into emptiness. It really gets into, you know, when he says there is no noble truth, only emptiness, it causes 
me to wonder like, you know, what is truth? Um, there, there are so many different people, not just talking about religion, but just in general, talking about like, what is truth? What is, because it seems as if there's only truth. People claim they have truth, but then it's like, well, then who has the lie? Does that one person have truth and other people have the lie? It really goes back into this whole uh, labels and, and putting ourselves in that dichotomy. Um, and in the context of this book, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, people are talking, you know, you're, you're talking about counting, uh, bringing back it to bringing us back to simple things. Um, what would you say to a person who was saying, okay, so how do we know that what you're saying is true? I think that's an excellent question to ask, right? Because the, this question of validity is at the heart of how we learn. And yet, when most of us are learning, very few of us choose to ask, well, what makes this knowledge valid? Right? And the moment you start asking that question, suddenly it's like um, you set off a nuclear reaction at the heart of all knowledge, in a sense. It's like, really, can, can this body of knowledge stand that test? What makes this body of knowledge valid? And so that's a really fundamental question. And, and we are, in a sense, setting off that reaction, chain reaction, saying, okay, there are many things we have taken for granted. What if we ask ourselves, what makes this valid? What are we going to find? So instead of answering the question, I would say this book is an invitation to lean into that question very deeply with every everything you have <clears throat> putting your skin into the game of of living that question you know some questions are meant to be lived not answered oh i like that <laughs> i like that a lot um especially since you know it, it's like if we if we've built a foundation we've like say say um when we think of the self if we are a skyscraper, we've spent our whole lives building this foundation based on what people have told us, how we should live, how we should look at things. You know, we've put a giant skyscraper with many floors on top of it. And then all of a sudden we come across something that may fundamentally change us on a foundational level. What do you do? <laughs> you mm. might have to take down the building. You may have to uh, pull up the foundation and start from scratch. The land is still there. The, 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 the land that we can build upon is still there, but we might have to change the entire structure of who we are. And so I really like the way you put that. That's very interesting. Let's start tearing down those foundations a little bit. So on uh, page 31, uh, in the middle, something that really stood out to me says, we have to justify receiving our salary by explicitly counting all the wonderful things we have done in our work context. That would be just fine if it were not for that bid of Bohid Harama, I may have messed that up, I'm sorry, within us that keeps tugging at our conscience conscience, encouraging us to find the courage within and recognize the absurdity 
of our pursuits. This really stuck out to me because when we get a job, um, when we start working, a lot of the time it's how much am I being paid? How much will be on at, on my paycheck? And it's almost like the value of that job is based solely upon the number that appears on our paycheck or in our bank account. However, as anyone who, unless you, you know, absolutely are in love with your job, (laughs) anyone that works understands that there is a little bit more to that than just the number of the paycheck. When you got a job and you say you negotiated a salary or you understood exactly what you were getting paid, you're probably excited. Like, oh, you know, I'm excited. I got this new job. I'm getting paid this certain amount. So if that's true, then why is it that when you get that paycheck that you are not enraptured in joy? Why? It, it seems as if there's something a little bit more, isn't there? Yeah, it's if you just look around, there are so many people in very well-paying jobs that burn out that, that if you were to ask them, they will say, I find my life to be very hollow and uh, they end up quitting, but it's not that they know what to do next. It, it, the hollowness chases you everywhere. And when I say they, by the way, this is all of us, not any one particular group of people. This is a, this is, this is the uh, hidden pandemic, I would say, of hopelessness and meaninglessness. And, and this is, you know, in, in earlier times in human society, We've had other challenges. Our challenges were we're actually starving. There's a famine. We are literally, you know, starving to death. Those are real challenges we have grappled with. Famine, war, all of these are there. And and yet the you know, if you look around here, say in America, we don't have a famine. People have food. They can they can afford more or less we don't hear of people dying of hunger or starvation. And you know, war, you know, it's it's not there in, in the US, thank God. But what we do have is this tremendous uh, wave of hopelessness. And and I'm talking about the circles where people have high paying intellectual jobs. And this is a real real problem. This is, you know, imagine whichever way you look at it, right? If you look at it from a social perspective, what a waste of a generation where people who have spent a lot of time getting really good at something don't find that inspiring, don't want to use that knowledge, don't find any way to, um, to inspire themselves to move forward. And, and that's, that's very hopeless. It's like you're stuck. I can't leave, but I can't be here either. And, and this book is written for all of us. You know, I'm, I'm writing it for my children when they grow up and they're working, right? And they, they, and sure enough, this is an existential crisis that every human being goes through. Why am I doing what I'm doing? I don't have answers, but what I do have is my reflections on, on a framework that I have found useful to think about. And it starts with this validity question. Like, what are you, do, what, what are you really after? And it has to be, it has to do with when are the moments in your life you felt full and what is the nature of that fullness? Are you you chasing a sensory pleasure 
Are, are you chasing a standard set by somebody else that you have to reach a certain salary level? You have to have a certain job description or title. Yes, you can get all of those. But look around you, people with those titles, ask them, how fulfilled are you? And I have asked, you know, I've, I've met people with the perfect job descriptions. And my question to them is, hey, are you happy? And people at very famous companies with excellent salaries, they will avoid the question. They will say things like, I'm having a great impact. I said, That's not what I asked you. I'm asking, are you happy? And after three times of uh, barraging them with that question, a friend said, hey, you know, I'm not looking for happiness right now. Uh, this is, you know, maybe I will look for it a couple of years down the line. <laughs> and I, I started laughing. I was like, okay, that that's, you know, that's, I guess that's a way to be. But it breaks my heart when I hear that. It It really does. It's true. Yeah. There, there are so many people that are, um, talking about finding happiness later on in life. And I'll admit, I, even I myself was one of those people, um, you know, years ago, I, I was like, you know what, I'm going to work really hard now so that I will be happy later. And then ironically, when, you know, you, you get more money and every, everything of that nature, all that work you put in, you kind of look back and you're like, you know what? I don't think I'm any happier now than I was before. You may have more resources. You may have more, um, you know, options on what you can do with what you've acquired, but it doesn't really mean it actually filled the emptiness that was, that was within me. So it's very interesting. You put it that way. Um, another thing that you mentioned, uh, kind of goes back to the preface too, where you talk about, uh, say like a younger generation who's not really pursuing the the careers that prior generations championed. Um, and it's almost like there needs to be a marriage between the two generations because, or the, or two or three generations, because I feel like, you know, again, young people are looking at the, how their older counterparts got burnt out um, pursuing that job, pursuing that career, that title, that paycheck. And they're like, you know, perhaps what makes me happy is just having the freedom to, you know, I may, I may not have as much money. I may not have, you know, uh, as much material things as I might desire, but you know, I, I, I might have more freedom. I might have more options or more fluidity in where I can travel or where I can move. Um, and then the older generations looking down saying, you know, but you, you have to rely more on others or you, you don't have as much independence. I have more resources. I have more survival. If the economy goes bad, I have more options, you know, basically. And again, it's, it's two sides of the same coin, as you said. Um, but it's really about like taking the whole picture and finding out what someone values. It goes back to, uh, for me on page 32, uh, toward the bottom where it says, um, his dialogue with emperor Wu urges us to count from a space of emptiness. Instead, this space is prevalent everywhere. It is in between the words you are reading right now. Without the space that complements every alphabet ever etched, you wouldn't be able to read or write. 
The space between notes is what allows music to exist as we know it. This space is practically between any form ever created and is also the container of all forms. It is where infinite possibility lives. And I found that to be beautiful because as someone who has been a lifelong reader and uh, author, um, in a strange way reading that, I was like, oh, that's interesting how I've taken even those words for granted. <laughs> uh, mm. Without the space that complements every alphabet ever etched, you wouldn't be able to read or write. And it's interesting. That's so interesting because I, it's like I focus so much on the words that I'm creating, I, I'm, the spelling, the grammar, the sentence structure, so much that without the very space between those letters, it wouldn't even exist. And it's like it, it kind of like brought a whole new way of looking at things and I, and I feel like I feel like that's something that people will gain value from this book is that they'll be able to form new synapses new ways of looking at things that may bring them closer to finding that balance between fullness and emptiness uh, you, you know that's, that's kind of interesting as we go deeper you'll find that they're not two separate things but but even beyond that, or before we get there, the thing that I'll call out is it's not that Emperor Wu is being discarded as inferior to Bodhidharma. Bodhidharma has got a point of view. And if this were just about, you know, if you were reading a book on Zen Buddhism, you'd be reading about Bodhidharma. Like, okay, that's the teacher you follow, um, you know, the instructions he's giving. But in this book, I am focusing exclusively on the space that the conversation creates between Wu, Emperor Wu and Bodhidharma, because that's where we live, right? If you were to become a monk, this is not the book for you, right? There are much better books. This, is, this book is the opposite. This book is saying, no, no, stay in the world. You are going to be in this messy world, creating distinctions, being, being a creator of wonderful things. And yet there is this, you know, Bodhidharma within us, nudging us. What are you doing? Are you sure this is not absurd? <laughs> and and how sure are you that there is something here, right? And what is, you know, are you building from a space of emptiness or are you building from a space of narrow agendas? And And so that tugging is constantly going on. And it's because the tugging is there that creation becomes possible. Creation from a different space becomes possible. If it was just Emperor Wu creating without a sense of depth, without a sense of this emptiness, then that's one kind of world. That's not what I'm talking about either. Other people have written and have much to offer if it was just Emperor Wu or just Bodhidharma. It's that intersection that is so interesting to me. I am very, very excited about diving deeper into that as well. Because then that is when so much fundamentally changes we can start working on that foundation so we're going to get on into the next part that um i definitely want to discuss and i actually have a little story to go with it as well after <laughs> after we talk about um so on page 33 it talks about uh have you have you wondered how the concepts of zero and infinity came to be uh because we're, we're getting into that whole you know it, it seems like they're two separate things but are they? 
uh, a little bit down further down, it says perhaps it is because these inventions did not come from Europe where they were stuck with the bulkiness of Roman numerals, which contain no zero and therefore no infinity. The, the, you know, we, we get into the zero and infinity. One is, one is what we call nothing and infinity we think of as forever, like never ending. Uh, you know, it's really interesting. You think of even uh, kids, you know, they'll talk about like, oh, you know, well, I got that. T- like, oh, well, um, you know, I love that times two. Well, I love that times 10. Well, I love that times infinity. And it's as if like, oh, okay, I won. You know, no one says like, I I, I, uh, I love that times zero. You know, <laughs> it would be like you would lose the, mm. you would lose the game, even though, even though, you know, that's fascinating to me because why, why is it that one has so much more value than the other? And again, we're going back to uh, these labels. So what, what, um, what, what are, do you think about zero and infinity when you hear those words? They're much more than abstractions. And, and that's, what, that's what the poem that's coming right after this gets into that when the ancient ones were pondering, right, what, what is this? What exactly are we counting? They found a lot of fullness and that fullness was represented in a way that was empty. It's, it's, it's just, it's mind boggling actually when you get into the poem. I don't know if you were planning to ask me about the poem or not, but the, the poem basically gets straight into that <laughs> that point that, Hey, um, the the symbol for fullness in every culture is a circle, no beginning, no end. And have you have people appreciated that that's the exact same same symbol for zero or nothing? It's like that's right here, right now. You don't have to read any any philosophical text. That is the mathematics we currently have. So let me pause there. So yes, I, I actually uh, <laughs> I actually wanted to get into the poem, um, and the poem is on page thirty four. It goes, "That is whole. This is whole. From that wholeness comes this wholeness. When this wholeness is taken away from that wholeness, what remains is wholeness." And uh, that kind of goes into the the little story that I had. Basically, I worked for I worked for a book publisher. To as far as I was concerned, it was a great job. Um, you know, I, I was uh, basically an editor, and I was you know doing everything required of me. I enjoyed myself, things of that nature. Um, anyways, so I would work with clients that the publisher took on, and we would discuss. I would basically ask, like, ask, um, act as a mentor. And uh, so one day. I'm sitting with a client uh, at Panera Bread. We're just we're just talking about their book and everything, and the client brought up, well, you know, I paid thousands of dollars to have my book edited, which was very interesting to me because I was the editor, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. You know, because to my knowledge, I had only been paid like a few hundred dollars to edit this book. It was a short book, but still, I was told by my publisher that, oh, you know, all the money that 
we are asking for an editor's price is going to the editors. So, and so, um, I'm, so I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. Like, so that's how much you paid and everything. And he's like, yeah, yeah. And I was like, that's curious because I am the editor. And he's like, really? And then from there we started to compare notes and we found out that the publisher was scamming a lot of people basically. (laughs) to put it lightly and so it was interesting because all of a sudden my whole concept of of my job changed where before i was like oh yeah you know i'm 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 happy i'm satisfied um i i feel whole at this place but with a little bit of knowledge suddenly that wholeness became a different kind of wholeness because not only now that it was like, okay, well, I obviously have to leave this job. Um, they're scamming people. Um, that's telling me also that I could probably find somewhere. Like, I wonder how many other ways I'm being scammed (laughs) personally. Um, I can find a different job. I will be okay. Um, I gained a valuable friend out of that client that we are still friends today. This was over a decade ago. And so that even though things were taking away from me um, and my world fundamentally changed in a lot of ways, I gained a new wholeness. And so it kind of goes back again to that concept of zero. It's like, you have now lost Julius. You have lost your job. You have lost money. You have lost a fundamental love let's say for businesses or something like you now you're a little more skeptical that is bad and it's like no no it isn't bad actually i gained a lot of good from that um and so i don't know i don't know if if that story kind of goes a little bit along with what the poem is trying to say or if you wanted to elaborate more on what the what the poem is trying to get at for our listeners. I think that's such a juicy story right there, right? You you felt fulfilled doing something and something shook your world. You found it was not wholesome and, and you found yourself moving towards something that felt a little bit more whole, right? And so it's, it's like you have to empty yourself of the narrow agenda of making money, right? You say, yeah, making money is fine, but that's not why I am here. That's what I'm, that's what I'm hearing from your story. That, that was not sufficient. Just putting money in your pocket, food on the table, you needed something more to feel whole. And so you had to empty yourself of the narrowness to allow yourself to open to a bigger, bigger kind of wholeness. Right. And, and, and what the poem's saying is, where does this wholeness come from? It can't come from any other place than wholeness. In other words, you are complete. It's only completeness that can source and recognize completeness. You know, in something incomplete can never comprehend completeness. It cannot source completeness. That's, yes. that's what I'm hearing. Yeah. Yes. No, no, you, you are, you're absolutely right. Because if it was something as simple as just getting a pay, you know, getting a paycheck, especially since I enjoyed my job, then why did that information change things? 
You know, it shouldn't have really changed much. And like, well, you know, what is valued to me is simply the paycheck or, you know, and, and what I'm doing at my job. It doesn't matter what else is happening. But that wasn't the case. Like, so, you know, immediately I was like, oh, something needs to change. And so, you know, it, it kind of goes back to counting toward the end of page 34. It says when you flip zero or nothing on its head, what you get in our present mathematics is infinity or a notion of wholeness that leaves nothing out. Can zero or nothing truly contain everything? And that oh, And then it gets into the aphorism on the next page. Zero is what you get only when you count everything. I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> talking, about, talking about expanding my mind. Yeah, but, but, but you, you missed the two lines right before that, which is, a little thought on zero reveals it is a sum of all positive and negative numbers and arrived at when you leave nothing out. Mm, That's yes. it. Just add everything you can conceive. When you, if you've not left anything out, what you get is zero. Today's mathematics. Right. That's true. True. Like, that's the essence. That's what I want to land. <laughs> hey, I'm not telling you something you don't already know. <laughs> that's true. Right. It's bringing back to those fundamentals. Like, I feel like um, I feel like people make things more complicated than they actually are. It's a, it's almost like as we get older, and uh, different things are piled upon us in life, and we're juggling all these different things. Like we forget about simple concepts. We forget about those first fundamentals. Yeah, and it's just fascinating, right? You miss a single number, a single positive or negative number, you're not going to get zero. It's only when you have accepted that everything is included and you add it up, that's when you get zero. <laughs> right. <laughs> this right. is what we were all taught as kids. This is, this is what we've already gone through. Like, who came up with this stuff, right? This is amazing. Exactly. Yeah, and, and, and it, says, it says on uh, 35, it says, every child in school is taught this connection between everything and nothing through mathematics. Let's try replacing every occurrence of wholeness with nothing. And what we get from the last line is, when nothing is taken away from nothing, what remains is nothing. Replacing nothing with its mathematical representation we get, when zero is taken away from zero, what remains is zero. People, I feel like this really brings people back to it's it's almost like it's almost like uh, it reminds me of ta Tabula Rasa, you know. It's almost like we're you know that 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 blank slate. It's like, okay, let's get through all the foolishness that you have piled upon, and the concepts and and like you said, the narrow agendas that you have taken upon, and let's get back to that blank slate. If you could do it all over again, like even as an adult. If you could do it all over again, like you retain your knowledge, but not necessarily the narrow agendas and the, the, the things that you are forced to do, what would you do as an adult? You know, what, what steps would you take? Um, because as a child, you are told like, okay, for example, you must go to college and get a degree. You have to. Now, if you were a child all over again, but you retained all the knowledge of an adult, would you do that personally? You know, um, 
children, you know, we can learn from children in a lot of ways. You know, it, people think about adults being almost like the the affinity of it. And children are more like the zero, like, oh, they don't know anything. But actually, there's a lot of things that we can learn from children. You, you know, on that note, I have to say, I was trying to explain the difference between zero and infinity and how they intersect. And I thought I was being smart. And, and my daughter was maybe four years old or five years old at the time. Uh-huh. And, and, and I, I, I was trying to explain to her that, hey, love is infinite. And, and, and I, was, I was asking her, so how much do you love me? And I thought she'll, whatever she says, uh, you know, I would say, well, you cannot quantify it would be my answer. But then she completely surprised me and she said, I love you more than you love me. <laughs> I just couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't respond to that. That was right. such an amazing thing to hear from a child that uh, it, it just immediately connected to me, me to my infinity and to her infinity. It's like, I felt complete hearing that answer. What a simple way of, of stating that reality. And children have a way of doing that. They do. They do. Um, they, they completely surprise you. Um, it, it's like you think that things are going to go one way, and then the, <laughs> it completely doesn't. We have a lot that we can learn from children. Uh, you know, even even when we talk about like the job realm and stuff. You know, even how children they they don't they don't look at certain things as work. So, like for example, one of my one of my sons, I would not be surprised if he turns into an architect or of some sort. He's always building, always. Mm, mm. And as an adult, you know, we have architects, we have builders, we you know, and they'll do it and. Uh, you know, like they, they think of it like this is work, but mm. to the child, it is play. And so, you know, how wonderful it would be to be an adult and you don't look at your job as work, but play and you get yeah. paid for it too. <laughs> so you, you're right. You're embarrassed to draw a paycheck is what my teacher would tell me, my professor. That's yes. the best kind of blessing one can have. The you know and the and the question becomes how do we get there? So someone is you know someone uh, listening right now be like, well, that sounds wonderful, but uh, I've established so much in my life you know around this job, and it mm-hmm. kind of goes what we were talking about in the beginning, where you know you you may have this job which is essentially the the alphabet, but what can you find in the space? between the letters you know what what can you find in the space between that can help you find that wholeness more or or um you know you you can feel more complete and so you know it kind of goes to the poem on page 36 and and please bring me back if i'm um you know skipping over anything that you want to discuss too but it the poem says, speech and mind turn back after finding this, the creative center of the self, to be unattainable. The knower knows the creative self through the feeling of joy. You know, there, there are some things, for me, when I read this, it, it brought me back how there are some things that you, you can't easily quantify. You can't easily describe it. It's kind of like, it's kind of like someone watching a good movie and 
you're like, that was a great movie. And if someone then asked you, well, describe to me, why was that a great movie? And you, you could bring up certain things. You could bring up, oh, you know, the, the lighting, the, 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 the plot was well done. The, you know, you could bring up like little things, stuff like that. But at the end of the day, there was something that resonated within you of why that movie was great and not just good on a technical level. Because there are movies that you might see that are, that are good on a technical level, but it didn't have that same emotional impact on you. It, it, the knower knows the creative self through the feeling of joy. There's something, there's something extra. There's something, but it, it brings me back also to like, you know, what your daughter said about, about, I love you more than you love yourself. There was something extra about hearing that. It wasn't just words. Yeah. Her exact words are, I love you more than you love me. <laughs> and, and the, and the thing about this, when people hear the word emptiness, it's such a label. Emptiness means there is nothing. And yet we are talking about emptiness and fullness being two sides of the same coin. So, so then it becomes like an intellectual quibble, like really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I understand you've argued. I think most people would say we've argued successfully that yes, our present day mathematics shows this, like that's how it is based, but what can I do with it? Right. Is, is this just intellectual? Because if it is intellectual, I don't know what to do with it. And and how do I reach this emptiness? Because does this mean I, I don't feel anything at all? Like, what, what does that mean? And what that second poem is saying is it's, it's, it's the exact opposite. In fact, you cannot be, um, you know, connected to your creative self if you cannot feel joy. It's precisely through joy an indescribable joy. It's not even happiness. It's it's like a, you know, people have all these words for it, like bliss, and you know, it's untranslatable in a sense. The word, the Sanskrit word, is ananda, and anand, it's a, it, it's the deepest kind of completeness. It's it's that feeling that arises when you feel complete. It's through that feeling that you know that you're creating something that feels valid for you. That's where validity comes from, that feeling of completeness. And so that yardstick is reachable because all of us, I hope all of us, has has felt it at some point in their life, right? that feeling of completeness. You know, so that's what connects the two together. That yes, if completeness is a source of completeness, wholeness is a source of wholeness, and the only way you'd know is by feeling that joy. And if you don't feel it, we're just playing intellectual games. It's the feeling that gives it a clear test of validity. Are you feeling it right now? Exactly. And, and, you know, and I, I personally, I feel that when, um, you know, I'm writing sometimes, you know, sometimes it's, it's, <laughs> uh, uh, Stephen King famously said, uh, writing is like laying pipe. You, you, you just go in there and you do your job. Like, <laughs> he's like mm. I mean, he's a famous author. Um, you mm. know, he's basically saying that sometimes even though writing is a creative outlet, um, that you just have to go in there with the mindset, like I'm laying pipe. I, I'm it's like, I'm doing construction, but what he's trying to do with saying that though, is that once you start writing, 
Um, because the hardest part, kind of like, say, going to the gym, is getting started. But once you actually start, that's when you start getting into this certain flow. Um, and I don't know if um, uh, people who do creative things or, or at their job or whatever, when you start getting into a, a certain flow, a certain mindset, it's very interesting. You kind of lose yourself into what you're, what you're working on. Um, that happens to me sometimes mm. when I'm writing, um, for people that may be like, oh, I haven't felt that you might've probably felt that while you were driving, I would say there were probably t- like, if you were on a, a long trip, road trip, or you're driving for a long time, at some point you kind of lose yourself in your thoughts. You, mm. you're, you're still driving the car. You are making very complex decisions <laughs> you know if you make the wrong choice it could be very dangerous but yet you're doing everything right but you're you're not there anymore so so that's that's definitely i think people have called that state to be in flow yes and and, and i think this is going to another level this is saying that you have that sense of completeness so so i you know i have to think about whether flow and completeness go together or not um it's difficult to answer that question but complete as it is in a sense is there is nothing to be achieved and i guess flow also is that space of you're 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 still inside right you're very still but a lot of stuff is happening around you. So I guess there is that sense of, um, I don't know. I mean, it's like I often find myself driving. I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily situationally fully processing all the cars, but I'm dri- still driving safely. And I'm in an intense philosophical conversation on the phone or, or thinking about stuff. But, but I think the joy is, is a different emotion. It's, it's that you've created something, right? You've expressed yourself. You know, you've left behind something that has some reality. That's like, okay, I have I have left behind a part of myself, and I'm so happy to have done it. This is a beautiful thing. It it leaves behind my values, right? You know, I'll give you an example. One thing that inspires me, you know, where I don't even know who did this, but at Stanford University's campus, there is a particular point uh, in the in the there's this quadrangle. It's called the quad, and if you are going to the quad with the oval behind you, the oval garden, and you you look to the right, the right side of the quad, you'll find this curvy road, and this road curves around the trees. It's the most amazing thing to see because you could easily say, hey, if you're a civil engineer, the the fastest, most efficient path from point A to point B is a straight line. So you need to cut cut down all those trees on your path. Just go, you know, bulldoze them and you're done. And by the way, most parts of the world where civil engineers have their say, that's exactly what you're going to see. But then at Stanford, they said, no, life is more important. So if the tree is there, the, the concrete is going to bow to the tree. And it, it, it's a wavy road that curves right around the tree. 
and these old old trees are still standing it's it's just majestic like it takes my breath away it's like wow this somebody here made those design choices that represented a value system that respected life seeing that i feel complete like this this is the kind of creation that that has a has sense of completeness even though i wasn't the one making those decisions i i can almost project that whoever did this must have felt complete and whoever is receiving it feels complete receiving this gift that's a different level of satisfaction different level of joy than just driving in flow that's this is like your you put your life force and left something behind this is this is the legacy this is the legacy one has created it's more than just like kind of like losing sense of self it is it is adding that joy to it it is adding that like breathtaking experience that i see i see mm. right and and the interesting thing is you could you could easily um, fall back into narrow identities right people make legacies all the time they you know people have you know put their name on something and and you know that's the legacy behind my name I, nothing wrong with that but in this case i don't even know whose name it is who should i thank <laughs> did this, right? So, right. This road. I don't know. And it's not there. I, I guess if a historian looked, we might find out. In the board meetings a hundred years back, some people debated this and decided this. But see, that's the beauty of it, right? You don't know who it is. Like these poems that I'm, I've got in the book, I can't tell you who wrote this. But but what they left behind was a legacy for our species, right? And and that's that's powerful. It's like wow. So what species legacy are we leaving behind? And what is our work that will protect our species going forward? That's a very large frame, very large frame than a narrow family legacy or my legacy. Yeah, like what is actually most important? <clears throat> when people talk about legacy, um, you know, you have a you have a great point. When people talk about legacy, they'll usually say my legacy is intact because my last name is carried on you know yeah. something like that but um for me i typically think of legacy as you know the values and principles that you bestowed upon your children did they withstand the test of time you know it might be something like a tradition it might be um uh, you know like something that we like oh in, in our family we do this or something or or this is a value that we upheld in our family you know if i was to look obviously i'd be you know gone but if i was to look 10 generations from now is that value still holding strong you know <laughs> is my uh descendant still passing mm. on that value to his or her children and, that to and, me and is legacy yeah, and, and then you can take it another level that even suppose the transmission drops, right, and from one generation to the next. Suddenly somebody comes along many generations down the line and looks at something you left behind and picks it up. It's that's what it is, like these these poems, right? You don't know if it was transmitted to your grandfather, father, or you, but you come along and you read it and suddenly you get the depth of its meaning and oh, you've picked up the legacy. Right? And similarly, the road, you, you walked on that road, you know, everybody has an agenda. I got to get from point A to point B on the campus for my class, for whatever meeting I'm going to. 
But one fine day when you're just there without an agenda and you see what's in front of you, you realize that you have picked up the legacy. You, it's, it's, you know, even though many generations have passed since that road was built, but that legacy is there for you to claim. And, and that's the message of hope I have that these ancient people whose names we do not know, they left this behind. And, and if we just look at it, it's ours. It's everybody's heritage. And we claim it and, and it opens up new realities for us, new ways of being. That's yes, yes, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's true because it may not even be that straight line <laughs> through your descendants. Right. It might be that curvature. <laughs> right. Someone else might pick up your legacy. That is true. Everybody's um, your descendant. Like what have you thought in that way? Everyone in this yes. planet. Right? Right. What right. are we leaving behind for everyone? Right. Let's look between the lines, the space. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and on page 37, it says, when we can start to empty ourselves of our narrow agendas and get closer to nothingness, that is when we get the opportunity to see if there is just a hollow void or the fullness in nothingness that the ancient and fittingly anonymous poets of India have written about. I, I love that. I love that so much, um, you know, because then it's like you you start to really understand what will uh, not just go past the test of time, but even when we talk about the self, it made me think of, you know, if it's like a job, for example, um, if you if you take away the job, what remains, you know? If someone, if someone is like, you know, I, I've been a teacher for 30 years. Okay, we're suddenly going to take away that job. Who are you? What remains? Mm. You know, even, even as a person, if, you know, if, if we take away some, a, a principle, something that you value, something, it's basically like trying to take a look at those narrow agendas as you're talking about those straight lines is like what what is remaining so so in when we get into the counting emptiness section of this chapter um you got into the anti-hero story and this was like really fascinating to me because it was all about plastic um without me actually you know reading the entire thing i would love for you to to uh, discuss this story a little bit, um, if you may, uh, however you deem fit. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. So this was very early in my career after graduating with a PhD. And this was like my second career after computer science. I was in decision analysis and doing strategy consulting. And I, I kept finding that the client we were helping, a plastic packaging company, they kept getting stuck because um, there was no juice in the ideas that were coming up. And that's when I went to my boss and, and I had just done my PhD on values. So I told him, hey, you know, I think they don't have a strategy problem. They have a values problem. They don't know who they want to be. And he, he was like, oh, well, you know, go go talk to the leader of the organization. See, I know because he, you know, boss was like, I, I don't know what to do with that. I do strategy work, not values work. So I, I told the leader and, and I failed because they're all oh, values. Do you mean integrity? I'm like, no, no, integrity is great. I, don't know. I said, yeah, we have a poster called integrity. I'm like, no, that's not what I mean. 
And I, I didn't have the language at that time to explain what I meant. But then we really got stuck. And there's a, I, know I won't give too much away, but there's a, there's a part of the story where we really got stuck. And a middle manager made some comments that gave me the opening to do a values-based listening exercise. And out of that came a breakthrough where we, we learned what are the values that make this company tick. And these were very specific and they had a generative sense to them, meaning this, if you ask these questions, you kind of would find your way towards what you needed to do. So it was extremely, extremely powerful as an organizing principle. So let me pause there. Um, and uh, in order for them to really, you know, discuss amongst themselves what, how to find their value and everything. Now, this is, this is a company we're talking about. This is a, a lot of different people. So far, we've been talking a lot about the self. We've been talking a lot about more of like an individual point of view. And so, you know, there's a lot of layers to the self and all that. But it gets a little more complicated when you are bringing in <laughs> different selves <laughs> into the mix because we're, we're all diff we all have our own labels and, and boxes and all this stuff that we're bringing to the table so it gets a little more complicated how do you as a company make sure that everyone is aligned to the same values when we're all completely different people uh and and this is where you get into methods of listening um and so on page 39 the first one says um, emptying ourselves of all agendas in order to connect to the wholeness, even someone else's, we have to let go of our agendas and only count what's important to the other rooting in emptiness or nothingness sounds quite intellectual and abstract, but practically speaking, it is the outcome of care, caring fully for what the other wants to share before they have shared it. This was very fascinating to me because it, it was almost like saying the other person's speech is the alphabet and you essentially become the space. Mm. At least that's what I got out of it. Is that kind of what you intended? That's beautiful. That's a beautiful way of uh, framing it. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's like you're committing to care in a manner that the content is immaterial. Yes. Right. It's, it's, uh, it's a hard thing to say, like, you know, what if the other person spews nonsense or stuff that's inflammatory? Would you still say that? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. 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 But, but that's kind of the, the, you know, that's an intellectual quibble in my mind. What, what truly I find happens is if you're listening with that, that intense quality, something comes into being like, you know, I've, I've not had that practical experience of hearing utter nonsense. You know, if, if that comes out, it's usually because I have not created the space. I've not done the hard, hard work to um, get rid of my narrow agendas and create that space where the other person feels safe in exploring these topics. You know, if exploring, uh, you shouldn't even say topics, like exploring the deepest part of themselves, of who they really are. That's not a, a joke. That's a sacred conversation, right? You you don't just go and, you know, I, you know, if you and I were talking casually over a cup of tea, 
we probably would not be having this conversation. Like I'm, I'm not such a good listener okay, in my daily life. Um, I, I, I would say that <laughs> I mess up all the time. And that's what makes these conversations very special because my intentionality comes in and it, it goes off the charts because I've made that commitment that, hey, I'm going to listen to you as though I'm listening to a God speaking, right? That intensity of listening is what I'm talking about. And if I can listen to you in that way, what are you going to say? And I have found profound things. I, I've heard profound things because my listening is picking it up. So it's a, it's almost like gods are listened into being. And who is the listener? You know, are you there to listen? Because they're walking all around us. Right. And and I feel like there's there's so much to this concept of listening, especially. Uh, because we're, we're living in a society that is increasingly seeming as if people aren't listening to each other, like what they're actually trying to say. Um, you know, I think it's almost like when people are having a conversation, they are doing it. They are full of narrow agendas because they're not, a lot of people aren't actually listening. They're, they're hearing the other person speak but they're still thinking about what am I going to say next? Mm. They're not really listening to what the other person is saying. They're not absorbing it. They're more saying like, okay, okay. I hear, I hear what they're saying, but I'm not really absorbing it. I, I I'm just waiting for my next point to be made. And so that's not really mm. listening. You know, that, that's the equivalent of uh, when you're talking about, um, Stanford, I believe it was with the, <laughs> you just want the narrow line from A to B. You're not, you're mm. not, you're not really looking at the trees. Um, mm. And, and, and also it goes back to the concept of emptiness and um, wholeness as well, a little bit, because you talk, you talk, you mentioned someone saying something inflammatory or, or something negative, or, you know, let's say, Let's say someone said something, um, you know, very, very controversial or, or racist or, or whatever, right? The the first thought to come to your mind is like the the going back to the whole dichotomy: this person's evil or bad, or or you know, like negative connotations. But if you're listening, even though you're not excusing the behavior, but if you're listening you may hear the space between those, those inflammatory words. You may hear this person is hurting. Why is mm. this person hurting? What is the emotion that is coming out? So like if wholeness brings joy, which is associated with a positive or happy emotion, then if we're on the flip side of the coin and we're talking about, emptiness so say someone who is feeling emptiness in a negative way and they're they're because they they don't have that joy they're expressing themselves in a negative way then you know what 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 is what is the space that we need to find within that i i think i think you know where i'm trying to get at but <laughs> yeah yeah no no this the, is a hard one this is yeah. absolutely a hard one and there have been, I remember one one conversation, and we haven't gotten into the topic of mapping, which is coming up in future right. chapters. But 
But the idea of listening in this way to identify values, and one particularly difficult uh, conversation was with a CEO who um, kept framing it as his goal was to take down all the existing players in the market. I'm like, okay, well, what motivates you? It's like, oh, yeah, I want to take them all down, put them out of business. I was like, okay, but what are you building? And it, it was like pulling teeth. Okay, I you know I get it. You want to destroy other people, but is there something constructive here that you are going to do yourself? And I just couldn't get this person to frame it in that way. So finally, I had to, say, you know, it was very difficult not to judge right when somebody is being that provocative, and and I had made that commitment not to judge. So then I offered. I said, look, let me put it this way. Here here is how I see what you stand for. And then I, I, I channeled what I thought I was hearing on, on this person's values, that you really care about equity, you care about this and that, all these positive things. And if that is true, then you're motivated in a very unique way. And that's something worth celebrating. Instead of focusing on these other folks who don't really matter in your life, you, you focus on yourself, focus on what you want to build for others. And uh, he got emotional. It's like he, it's it's almost like he felt understood in a way that um, where he didn't need to fight and say those provocative things, and and that's uh, that's a lesson for all of us because in other you know table tables always get turned on you and roles reverse, and I have been in other situations in my life where I could have been this chap, you know, uh, disparaging others, and and we all all have our pet topics. We're allowed our, our topics where we, we have strong opinions and, and can disparage. And I can see other people there who are coaching me and I have had, you know, very fortunately mentors who are like, don't disparage. It doesn't, even even though you may be right, it, it's, um, you know, it, it's much better to focus on what you can construct than what you can destroy. And if you can take that perspective, the the violence in the situation disappears. Then, then it naturally just falls away because if there is some purity to the value, the intention, people will gravitate to it. They will take, you know, and and those who don't take, that's okay, you know, live and let live. So, so that's that's what's in the space for me. It's like, it's a it's a very inspiring conversation. This is the book. This book matters to me because I need to do this work in my lifetime. It's like this is the work, right? How do you? put in these 100 push-ups to listen in this way. It's not easy. It is not easy. This is not your casual hi-hello conversation. This requires every drop of your blood committing to to seeing and respecting the person you're listening to. So, so true. So true. And, and, and it goes, it goes uh, right to uh, point two, where uh, it says, when the speaker is feeling something deep, and step one of emptying agendas has been done. Listeners also tend to feel something. That's when you're. That's when you start to connect on a deeper level with the other people around you. And you're. And if you are all actively listening, then you can all reach a consensus or or get closer to um, figuring out what you all value as a collective. Um, and that, that, like you said, that requires a lot of hard work, especially if you have members in your company or group or even family, um, that 
has that they're saying inflammatory things you know they're saying negative things but you know we we're all a product of our experiences and and things that we've gone through and it's kind of like again finding finding the underlining lying things that have informed who we are you know breaking us down to you know why was that foundation made the way it was um uh, for example, I remember seeing this documentary. Uh, I think I don't remember exactly his name. It was Daryl something or whatever. Anyway, he was a African American man that would go talk to Ku Klux Klan members, <laughs> and just by listening to them, um, which again, you know, is that something that you know the typical person would do? Probably not. But just by listening to them and just talking with them, uh, he was able to convert a lot of those Ku Klux Klan members, including Grand Wizards, from giving up uh, their their way in the Ku Klux Klan. So like, they would hang up their robes and be like, I'm done. Like, I'm done. I don't believe in this ideology anymore. Um, and he did that basically by actively listening. Like, it, you know, like, obviously they said to well, inflammatory yeah like yeah like anyone listening like like look into it like obviously they would say inflammatory things to him he is an embodiment of what they hate but yet he was able to convert so many people um from turning away from that ideology and in the documentary he would show like all the robes and all the different things that um he has collected from people like they they would give uh those robes to him and you know that is in a way his legacy because mm. even though you know all those people he's basically changed generations because <clears throat> those people who have kids then they are now saying like oh okay yes i used to be this way but that's wrong or or that's not the way you should look at things you know and other people that is creating a ripple effect that's his legacy mm. and he did that by essentially just listening so there's definitely mm. power in um listening it's very important gotta check it, that documentary out yeah so yeah good, yeah good one to mention and so we got a little further into um the example uh the, the anti-hero example with the the plastic and essentially they created their own values. And again, this is a company. This is not, this is not one person. This is not the CEO said, these are our values and then trickled it down to the rest of the workers. Um, they basically came up with, you know, our values are, we want our products to be safe in which the packaging allows people to trust that the consumable in it was safe to consume, that it's natural. Um, that we can package our food without using preserv preservatives because we want people to have access to natural food. We want it to be economic. Our packaging allows resources to be democratized by reducing the cost of delivery and sustainable. Um, we want to reduce the strain on our planet to grow more food by protecting the food that is already here for a longer time. That's, and it's, that's, that is fascinating to me that they all decided upon those four values 
and what makes it interesting is that by having those four values, then anything that pops up basically like, oh, you know, a, a new packaging or a, I don't know, a new method that we have to implement, they go back to these four values and they say, does this meet our values? Because this is what we have decided upon. That's very fascinating to me. Like, what, um, what did you think about that? It was mind-blowing. It was, you know, it's kind of the opposite of lecturing someone about what they should be doing. It's like the, the, the most attractive thing about this whole work is if we just shut our mouth, right, and listen deeply, the innate wisdom is there in the communities of practice, right? This was the company. This this was the 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 people who worked every day in their you know in their manufacturing units. This was the, the, their leaders when they were reflecting on a career, you know, for many years doing the work. This is the this is the set of values, the labels that were sacred to them. And when that sacredness was expressed, it had a reality and, and validity, and that validity came from resonance, right? If this was not really the the community's values, the resonance would not be there. We're like, oh, that's interesting, but it sounds like a gimmick. But because it was real, it stuck, and people felt like, oh, this is us. Yeah, this is. I'm proud of of my identity. I mean, think about it, right? In cocktail parties. You, you, so what do you do? I make plastic on that, and and people are judging you, right? And and now suddenly you're saying, what do you do? Well, I deliver on safe, natural, economic, and sustainable. And so it just it just makes you feel proud coming into work every day. It's just you know it's like a like wind in your sails, and and that was profound. And it didn't come from us. It didn't come from the outside. It was there. That's the beauty of this whole process. That we can find the wisdom that's authentic and real. And it also turns out that when you you follow these values and you, and you enshrine them and say that, hey, my strategy is based on this, I'm not looking at money. Like if you come up with a deal that has nothing to do with these values, maybe a good deal, but it's not for us. That kind of clarity is tremendous because it 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 protects if you go back to the original, you know, you started with the poem, it protects the space where you can feel that creative joy. You're not getting distracted by things that have nothing to do with your creative joy. And when that happens, you build, you know, it, it's questionable whether you're going to make lots of money doing this or not. That, I'm not claiming that. But at least it, it sets you up to be in that space, to inhabit that space of joy. And at least from the preliminary results I saw, it's a story about a country manager who was able to increase the valuation of his portfolio. And I asked him, what did you do? He said, well, I use the values. So, so this is something I'm putting it out as a poser. That what if we were to find that if you ask people to double their revenues or triple their revenues, what if you were to find that that shuts the brain down? because it's so abstract, it doesn't connect with your creative joy. Usually, my finding is good ideas don't come out that way. But instead, if you connect to the core, the core values that this person finds sacred, ideas don't stop coming. They're just constantly on fire because it's them. And some of these ideas will have great market potential. So that's what this company was finding, at least in the, in the brief time that I was there. 
that it was very inspiring to me. They taught me more than I could offer anything to them. And and that's and that's why um, you know listening is is great. It goes back to the circle because you were there. You know they came to you, or, or I'm sorry, you you were there to offer some guidance. So it's almost like you are. If it was if this was a pyramid, you were on top of the pyramid. But then through their action, through their work, they brought something back to you. You know, creating like that that circle of of sorts, mm. um, and so on and so forth. And 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 that is the beauty of listening, and that is the beauty of really figuring out what we all value. Um, it's almost creating a ripple effect, not just with the self, but with others around you, which will extend out to co- whole communities and countries and stuff like that. Instead of focusing only on those narrow agendas, like something is like money, like, Oh, it's all that matters is money. And it, apparently that's not true. Um, and then in, in, in uh, halfway through, uh, page 41 it says the heroes of this book are anti-heroes who are not going to leave their work but will reorient how they relate to their work through values just like batosai in the preface um and i I like this because because it, it doesn't mean you have to completely upend every single facet of your life in order to find those values and create a big impact on the world around you it may just be something as simple as just listening to others while focusing on the wholeness and joy that is within you. I think of like, you know, for example, it's like someone who is um, like, say someone is vegan, right? You can tell people, ah, you shouldn't on a, on an intellectual level, you can tell people you should not eat meat for these reasons. It's wrong. This is what they do to animals, but a lot of people they 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 won't necessarily you know listen to that. They'll they'll oh I understand I understand the intellectual, but in the end I'm going off the emotion like it tastes good or or this is the way I was raised or there's so on and so forth. But in that same example, a vegan might be like you know what they I'm not going to tell you on an intellectual level why you should eat meat, but or why you shouldn't eat meat. But what about trying this dish that I made. Someone might be more willing to listen to something like that. They might try the dish and be like, you know what? That That's actually pretty good. Perhaps, perhaps I may not become a full vegan like you are, but I might do better. I might eat a little healthier. And, it, and it's like, it's little things like that, that listening, that finding the space between that can cause change because then you never know, like in that example, what someone might do. They might, that one, just being able to try that dish might enable someone to, you know what? I, I kind of like that. Maybe I'll, I've known people that have been like, okay, for the month of January, I, I, I'm a vegan. Just little things that have profound effects. Someone might judge them off of, okay, so out of the other 11 months out of the year, you're eating meat still though. And it's like, but during that one month, he still made a change and you never know that person may have children or friends or whoever that might be like, you know, what? I really like that month in which we're vegan. I may transform my life and just become full vegan or so on and so forth. 
Um, well, it, it's interesting you chose that example. I think is it in chapter four where we will be um, the, the, talking about the virtuous butcher. Right. Oh, I can't. It? I can't wait yeah. to get to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it, it's it's interesting. Like we we have all these judgments on what is virtuous and what is not, right? And it's not an easy determination to make. And at the same time, you're right. Like it's uh, you know if you if you were to listen to what is in the space, you might find that hey, it is a lot of it has to do with the culture, right? America was not a culture that was very agrarian. So here it's very difficult to be vegetarian because vegetarian means you have to give up on the flavors, right? Whereas in India, vegetarian and non-vegetarian have no difference. It's the same taste. It's just that one has meat, the other doesn't. So it's very easy if, you, if you're from the Indian background that you don't miss anything. You have lots and lots of options. And if, if, if you had to be a vegetarian in, in America, it's like, oh, you're stuck with raw food like salads. It's so much harder. Now, of course, that's changing because now people are getting into cooking their food in, in, with, with, in, in flavorful ways. So it's slowly changing, but it was, it, it's not easy. And so having empathy for that, right, that shift is a really important thing that, hey, give me alternatives. And the other part is expense, right? All the systems are set up to support a particular way of life. And here you want to upend that, but without giving an equivalent alternative. So again, not easy. So there's, you know, and so when you start looking at this, there's a lot of empathy that, oh yeah, you know, there are these barriers. So who am I to judge? You know, I, I don't have the wherewithal to remove these barriers. So there's no point judging there. If you, know, you can, if you, if you can't do something to make it better, hold your peace and go walk in peace. But if you can change something, do it. <laughs> so I have the engineer's creed there that no point disparaging. If you can improve, go do it. Otherwise, let people be in peace. <laughs> right. It requires having a, you know, an open mind and being very considerate of uh, what others are going to. And, and definitely identifying your values to have a sense of self as well you know, when you're, when you're confronted with different things. Um, yeah. And toward the end of, uh, 42 last par page 42, last paragraph, uh, it says identifying our generative values is of utmost importance to strategy work because strategy is primarily about what we are not going to do. A good strategy gives focus and direction toward what we value. If we do not truly know what we value as evidenced by our ability to feel wholeness, through those values, the best strategy books and the most skillful strategy thinkers won't be able to help us. Without the ability to discover what truly matters, we will find ourselves crushed by other people's expectations, if not our own. Yes. If we, <laughs> you know, and, and I think this really talks to people that, um, you know, for example, if you look at the self-help industry, self-help books, or you think about gym memberships that rise uh, right around New Year's, it's clear that there people do want to make a change. They wouldn't be seeking out this knowledge uh, if it wasn't, you know, for that hunger. But just like with the plastic example, though, it, it really requires taking a deep dive within and 
trying to figure out what do you value on a fundamental and foundational level? Because just like the plastics company, they came to you. It's the, it's the same thing, like people coming to self-help books. You know, I, I need a strategy. I need someone to tell me what to do so that I can be happy. But in the plastics example, it required, you know what? I cannot tell you how to be whole or happy or joyful. What is the, what are the values that are already within you, yourselves and as a collective? What are those? And once those were identified, then they were able to make progress. And it's the same thing with the self. People may reach out for the self-help books and all that, but until they actually identify what they value within themselves, none of those things are going to really help them. And that's why uh, gyms make a ton of money every year. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but, but you know, the, the interesting part, the other side of the coin is who are we to judge? Right. And, and that's going to be a repeated theme in True. this book, right? Plastic company, who are we to judge? You know, we were looking at them superficially, but when you look deep, my God, they are in a sacred space. Right. Same way, the, it, it's like that Bhattosai uh, metaphor that, yes, he may be a swordsman and swordsmen are dangerous. You know, they kill people, but that's not what he's doing. He's got his values and he's expressing them, right? Protecting life or honoring life. And so wherever you look, I have found that one can find sacredness. Right. And, and, and that's that's what makes this this whole uh, exploration very magical not a place uh, there's a there's a poem by this uh, poet kabir from india and and it goes something like this that i looked all over the world could not find a single bad thing then i looked at my mind couldn't find anything worse <laughs> so <laughs> right that's a right <laughs> that's sort of the the theme of this book that not in a grandstanding kind of way but doing the 50 push-ups let's take a look and let's see what we find and and so far like I'm, I'm i'm sure there'll be contradictions to any generalization but so far in my exploration i have found something sacred every time i've looked yes every, every single time I, right and um i really want to read the questions for reflection for anyone that's listening as well I think it's I think it's one of those things where it's kind of like um you may be hearing the questions for the first time but they're for reflection. So it's like you want to hear them again and again and again. They say that you need to hear something 8 times for something to stick. <laughs> At least that's what I've been taught. But anyways, um so the questions for reflection beginning on page 44 um and this is for our listeners. How do you relate to the notion of zero being the sum of everything? Allow yourself to feel the wonder of this concept. What opens up for you? Number two, how do you relate to the counting system in your life after reading this chapter? Number three, what do you make of the zero is full idea? That when you empty yourself of agendas, there's something whole in there that can be known through the feeling of creative joy. And number four, 
when have you felt creative joy in your work? In those moments, what was your relationship to your agenda? So that concludes chapter zero. However, is there anything that you would like to say before we wrap that up? No, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you for the depth you're bringing to this, Julius. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're most welcome. And uh, so everyone that is uh, listening, please join us for chapter one, the purpose of business. Thank you very much. And we will see you soon.